the table. It's the one place we still slow down enough to actually talk to each other. Where we discuss the day's highs and lows with family and friends. From the mundane to the meaningful, we share laughs, lessons, and sometimes loss all around the table. It's the place we meet for meals, games, and staying up to finish homework. Sometimes quiet and sometimes crazy. From the silly to the serious, life happens around the table. Well, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced it. I may be alone in this, but if you've ever been at the table during holidays and you're sitting there and there's, there's empty seats or maybe there's a spot at the table where a certain part of the family usually sit, but, but this year they're, they're not there. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. And the, and the reason they're not there is, is there's some conflict. There's some issues. There's some infighting, maybe some quarreling some stressful points in the family. Um, I'm probably alone in that, uh, but, but you've probably ex- maybe experienced it. I don't know. I'm just taking a hunch, guess. Or, or maybe you've been at that holiday dinner and that family is there. That part of the family that, that you know there's an issue with, and maybe it's not you, but maybe it's just kind of hanging over the family, but, but it is there, and they are there. Sometimes the meal just doesn't taste as quite as good as it should when that's happening. Um, we've all been there. We don't like it. Maybe we've been the cause of it. Maybe we're the, the reason for the tension in the air. But we've all experienced that uh, one time or another. And, and if we think about that, that, that the quarrels and the conflicts that happen in, in our own family, I mean, you, you kind of blow that up and keep going out and out, and, and you see... Uh, the picture of our world, filled with quarrels and conflicts, whether it's war, whether it's battles, whether it's fighting, bullying, and schools. Um, it's present in our world today, disunity, the lack uh, of peace. And it can be present in the church as well. Uh, today, that's what James addresses. He addresses conflicts. He addresses quarreling within the churches in Jerusalem that he's writing to here, and he gets to the source of the matter. What, what's the source of such issues and stresses and conflicts? And what we're going to see today is really four points as we look at this text today, as we walk through these ten verses. Is first, the conflicted soul. Um, and when we think about the conflicted soul, we, we think about how one's at conflict with other people. They don't have peace with other people. Um, but not only that, they're conflicted within. And then the second point that we're going to see today is not only the conflicted soul, but one's conflict with God. And then lastly, or the last two points this morning, how God gives a greater grace to the humble and how you and I are called to draw near to God. And that's the call today is that you and I would come near to God. And so as we look at this, I want us to first see the conflicted soul. We're going to do this today. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to James 4. Matt read it for us. Thank you, bud. Um, and I want us to, we're just going to walk through these verses and uh, really pick these apart. And I want us to see um, just how James really looks at this conflicted soul. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, I, f- I forget, Matt, what was the page number on that? One, 
179, Kyle? Thank you, buddy. 179. I'd love for you to look at the text there and the, the Bible we have in the back of the pew. And I want you to see it for yourself. And I'll just walk us through this. But first, the conflicted soul. Look at what verse 1 says in chapter 4. James asks a question. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he asks this question to the churches there in Jerusalem, to his readers, and he's going to specifically address these, these external conflicts, these external quarreling that's going on, but he truly is addressing the soul, one soul, because this one or these people are conflicted with others, but also conflicted within. And we'll see that in just a bit. But first, there's this conflict with others. And, and how do we, we see that? Well, he says there's quarreling going on. When we think of quarreling, what do we think of? Some of us, we think of, um, you know, uh, turmoil or uh, maybe some, some fighting going on. The word right here is literally rendered war, war. And so James is using some, some big words to speak of the stress and the tension in the church. And then he says conflicts as well. And this refers specifically to a specific battle going on or a specific fight that they are conflicted over. And so both, both terms here are used to show something. It's used to show the seriousness of such and how it affects personal relationships when we quarrel and when we conflict. And so who is experiencing them? Who are the people that are quarreling, that are conflicted? And James says here, the last part of the question, he says, those among you, which means that these are combative relationships between, it seems, members within the church to whom James wrote. Now, it seems by what he's going to say in a little bit through the verses we're going to look at this morning is that these may not be believers who are causing such quarreling and combativeness in these relationships. They're bringing grief to the church. If you remember back in James chapter 2, James encouraged the church that with this, that um, faith without works is what? It's, it's dead. And, and he would say such a person who quarrels and, and, and has such conflict going on, um, and he's going to speak of that in, in why in 2 and 3, is because they, they truly don't have a saving faith. And, and so here it could be these who are part of the church, they're, they're coming but, but they're not saved. They haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior yet. And they are causing quarreling. They're causing conflict among the church. But he addresses this to the church to let them know, hey, listen, um, where do such quarreling, where does such conflict come from? Because all are impacted. And so conflict within the church, first of all, it's not God's will, is it? It's not his plan. It happens it happens at different times. We've all been at churches maybe before where uh, maybe it's small conflicts, maybe it's something in a small group, or maybe a little broader to, that affects the church body. We, we've seen it in different ways. Uh, maybe it's with an individual person uh, that we have, but that's not God's will. In fact, what, it, what is God's will? When we think about the church and how he wants us to relate with each other, it is this way. In John 13, 34 through 35, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he says this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have this type of love for one another. Later, Jesus is going to pray to the Father. And he says in John 17, verse 21, that they may all be one. Who? The church. 
those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that they would be in unity, even as you, as he's praying to the Father, are in me and I in you, Jesus says, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And so you see, the unity of the church is to be expression, an expression to the world of the gospel and the grace of God, that how he can take people who are from different backgrounds and different walks of life, different um, uh, groups and, and things that once divided, now they come together and they are united together. And because of that unity, that, that expression of love that they share, it's a message to the world about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. Even after Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 4, 32, it says, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. There was a unity. And that's God's love. That's, that's his desire for the church. And then listen to this. Paul exhorted churches in Corinth who were divided, who were facing divisions. And he said this, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so what is scripture telling us? He's saying that there is no place for conflict. There's no place for quarrels within the church. I'm sporting a new mic this morning, and it's working its way down. There we go. All right. Just, just want to let you know that. <laughs> so he longs for unity. But here's the question. What is the source? What is the source of the quarreling? He wants to get to the heart of the issue. What's the source of the conflict? Look at verse 1 toward the tail end. He'll answer this with another question. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. It's pretty strong language. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so James answers his first question, what's the source of the quarreling? What's the source of the conflict that you have with others? And he says real simply, the source is what? Self. The source is self. If you go back a little bit to when David preached before Palm Sunday, that Sunday before, he, he preached on the two different types of, of wisdom, the wisdom of the world and, and the wisdom that comes from above. And listen to what James 3 tells us. And just If you'll turn maybe over to the left, look at verse 14 and 16. Look what it says. It says, if but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And so where does such disorder come from? It comes from self. This conflict and, and this quarreling comes from self. You see, the wisdom of the world points to self. It points to the exaltation of one's self. The world glorifies. I mean, you see it on commercials. You see it on shows. I mean, you see it all over the place. The world glorifies self-satisfaction. It's all about making 
you better, what you want, when you want it, getting it quicker, getting it more instantly, gratifying self, 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 self. Everything from, from our phones to our possessions. I mean, you name it. It is about feeding self. And getting more and getting more and getting more. Pastor John MacArthur says this. He says, the sources of external conflicts among people invariably arise from what? Internal conflict within each person. And that's what James has in mind here. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, your pleasures that wage war in your members. So what is James saying? He's saying, man, there is a battle going on. Every person in this room, nobody is excluded from this. That there is a battle going on in our souls. Even right now, there is a battle going on. Here's how Paul pictured it. He said in Romans chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members." You see, these pleasures come from what? From selfishness, which opposes who? God. Which opposes what? The Word of God as well. And there's this war battling. Do you know it? Do you feel it? Do you, do you know what James is talking about, what Paul's talking about? Have, have you ever just, have you ever maybe woken up in the morning or maybe been woken up by a dream and it, you're flooded with past sins and past thoughts and you're like, where in the world did that come from? That was like 20 years ago. You ever face that? That's just one idea of it. You ever had, maybe you've, you've conquered a habit and stuff like that, and one day just out of the blue, you just feel that pressure and that, that desire just raise up? It's real, and we all battle it. We all deal with it. We think, oh my goodness, I, I thought I conquered that. Well, it, it will try to raise its, its ugly head. Even though as, as believers, we, we, death has been conquered. Self has been crucified. The presence of sin still wages war against us, even just in our hearts and in our souls. And what happens is these pleasures that James is talking about, they wage war against everything standing in its way. And they seek to do everything they can to be fulfilled and obtain what they want. And so when desires from the wrong kinds of pleasures are frustrated, when they're unfulfilled, what do they start doing? They start waging external war. And that's what James has in mind. The ultimate end of one who lusts and cannot achieve his desired goals, whether it be reputation, whether it be prestige, whether it be sexual gratification, whether it be money, whether it be power, whether it be trying to escape through drugs and alcohol, success, possessions, uh, the affections of another person, um, or whatever, it often ends in what? If we don't get what we want, it often ends in harm and pain, and hurt toward others. And that's why he uses the strong language, so you commit murder. And, and we see it in our world, and that's what's happening. People get to that end, and they, f they feel like, okay, my, my lust and my desires, my pleasures are not being fulfilled and, and reached. And so they get led to that point that this is all they could do. They, they got to get rid of the person, they got to get rid of something, and sometimes even they feel like they got to get rid of themselves. And it happens, and it's real. We see it in Scripture from the beginning with Cain and Abel. 
Cain got to that point and, and killed his own brother. And it goes on and on from there through history. And so James tells the readers here, and he tells us this morning, he says, you are jealous and cannot obtain. So what do you do? You fight and quarrel. And so these pleasures can eventually lead to marital conflict, family conflict, job conflict, greater scale and national conflict. And they're all a result of unsatisfied personal lust, desire, and jealousy. And so the conflicted soul that James is talking right here does not have in verse 3 because they don't ask. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is kind of interesting, James. Now you're thrown in prayer? What, what, what's the link? What's, what's the goal? What's he doing here with this verse? Um, I, I think what he's saying here is these who are so self-enamored and controlled by self that they are not willing to ask for help. They're not willing to turn to God for wisdom, but they believe that they can take care of themselves. I got this. I, I don't need God. I don't need community. I, I don't need other people to help me. Instead, I'm going to roll with this on my own. I've got everything under control. They believe everything can be met through human means, through their own power and diligence and their own wisdom. But when they do pray, according to what James says here, what do they pray with? Wrong motives. Because why? They're self-centered when they pray. They're, they're asking that their pleasures, their desires, would be fulfilled instead of God's desires. And so he paints this picture of really a conflicted soul. We see the external problems, quarreling and conflict, but the problem lies here with self. And so as a result, one has conflict with God. Look at verse 4. No peace with others and no peace with God. He says in verse 4, you adulteresses. Now, James is going to kind of beat him up a little bit here. I mean, this is it's kind of strong stuff. He calls them adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He asks. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Asking, he, uh, he jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. Now when we think about what James refers to these who are so enamored with self, um, even being led toward quarreling and conflict, and he calls them adulteresses, we think of the word of, of adultery. What is adultery? It's the sin, right? Uh, of breaking a marriage covenant by having sexual intimacy with someone other than your, your spouse. And so the question is, why does James use that word to refer to these, these people that are causing these external issues and they have this internal conflict as well. Well, I think the reason is, is, is this, is that, that they're claiming to be believers. They're claiming to be Christians. They're claiming to have faith in Christ and even attach themselves to the church. But James, and if you go back to chapter two where he says faith without works is dead, James seems to say here that, hey, listen, you say this, you profess this, but, but yet there's quarreling and conflict over here. And you won't humble yourself and submit yourself before God. And so he says here, hey, your profession doesn't match what's real. You won't submit to God. You won't submit to his word. And so James is basically saying, hey, you're, you're being a, an adulterer. You're saying you love God, but, but you don't. 
by your actions and therefore committing spiritual adultery. And so James says here, as a result of that, I want you to know, do you not know that you have a friendship with the world? You're friends with the world. You might think to yourself, okay, we're told to love the world, right? That's why Jesus came. He loved the world so much he gave his, his own life. That's not what James has in mind here. This, this friendship with the world is with the world system, is, is with the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the desires of the world, the goal of the world, which is self-centeredness, self-satisfaction. So he says, you're friends with the world. What does this friendship look like? This isn't just some, hey, bud, you know? No, this is intense. This is deep affection for the world's system. And John says in his first letter, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's why James says, If you're friends with the world, you are in hostility toward God. Literally, he says, you're an enemy of God. When one chooses the way of the world, over God. What is he saying? He's saying you're an enemy of God. Adulterous, friends of the world, hostile toward God, an enemy of God. And so I think to his readers here, I think James wants the church to know. I think those who are causing the conflict, but also those who are experiencing it and seeing it, he wants them to be reminded here that there is a, a great difference between the Roman Empire, Roman culture, and the system, and the kingdom of God. And we must be careful as well. Because I think what James is saying here is you, you can't satisfy the demands of both worlds, both kingdoms. And that's always a pull, it's always a tug. Jesus said it in the Beatitudes, he says you can't serve two masters. You can't. And that's why he uses this strong language. And James calls attention to the word of God. Look at verse 5. This is an interesting verse. It's a tough verse. Maybe one of the toughest verses that, that you find in the New Testament to understand what is James talking about in the context and, and what it says. But look at this. He asks a question. He says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And so he he's, wants them to Recall what Scripture talks about specifically, and he gives this question. He jealously, speaking of God, desires the Spirit which he made to dwell in us. Now, you read that, and it, it seems that he's waiting, what he's saying here is that God desires, he, he's jealous over, now this kind of jealousy is not sinful jealousy, but he is jealous over the, the desire, the, the wanting of His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which He made to dwell in us. It, it, it seems He could be talking about that. It, it, instead of having another spirit, instead of having these, these other pleasures and these other desires raging and warring and winning and reigning, He wants His Spirit. It could be that. But I think also, as we read in... Um, the original text, if you, if you do some study here, even maybe in your scripture in the middle or even in some notes, you may find that the original reads this way, that the Spirit, without a capital S, which He has made to dwell in us, lusts with envy. 
is one rendering. And the idea is that, yeah, uh, the, God created us, um, but because of sin and the effects of it, now lust dwells within us, and it does so with, with envy, and therefore, we're at this permanent state of conflict with God because of that. I think any, any rendering can, you can go with, but I think the idea is he's saying here, hey, listen, we're greatly impacted by sin and greatly impacted by, by selfish desires. And as a result, we have conflict with God, and God doesn't want that. He desires that his Holy Spirit would live in us. And so you have this, this conflict, but listen to what he says next. He says in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. I love that phrase. He gives a greater grace. Here, here's all these issues. Here's all these struggles. Here's all this conflict, selfishness, sinfulness, helplessness, ungodliness. But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, here, here's what James is saying with this, this, this change here. He says, but I want you to know this. And what he's saying is, is, is the gospel the grace of God is still available. It's abundant. The gospel is for the selfish and the self-centered who cause fighting and quarreling and conflicts. That's why Jesus came. That's why he says it's a greater grace. You remember what Paul said in Romans 5? He says, for a while we were still helpless. Right? Remember, these are people, they don't want help. They don't want help. They need it. And Jesus came for those who need help. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so those, according to what James says here, who humble themselves before God, admitting their need for help. Remember, these are people who, I don't need help. I got this on my own. And they live according to self. But those who humble themselves and turn and say, you know what, I need help. And they trust God for that help, for that deliverance from those raging lusts, from those selfish pleasures and desires. And they trust in Christ and his death and resurrection. And they'll be forgiven. And they will receive the grace of God. But he says also, those who remain prideful, who do not accept God's help to change them and save them. What does he save here? To those who have no interest and God, but alone, they believe, I've got this. Other parts in Scripture in James, they're those who demonstrate favoritism because of status or wealth or whatever. They're those who exploit the poor, those are the proud. It says here, God will oppose them. And so what it means is, just as you're an enemy of God because of your friendship with the world, because of that, God opposes you. You're an enemy of God. And so in light of this, in light of this greater grace, I think that's what James wants to focus on. In light of this greater grace, if you will humble yourself, James says, I, I want you to see verse 7 and 10. And he calls us to this. And so that's where I want to close at this morning is, is to look at these last few verses in our remaining time. I want us to see here, this is the call. In light of greater grace, this is our response. And so here's the deal. I, I think you can apply this to a non-believer. If you're in here today, and you're, you're like, you know what, I, I don't believe in Christ right now. Um, maybe you're kicking the tires. Maybe you're trying to, to learn more about who Jesus is. That maybe that's why you're here. Um, 
maybe that's where you're at, or you're here today and you're a believer, and you read this, and you're like, okay, I get the waging war, I understand that, I, I still have sin that, that still wants to creep its ugly head up and, and cause me to um, get off path, and, and, and so what, what do I need to learn here? Well, I think verse 7 through 10 is an encouragement to both. First of all, to, to, the, to the unbeliever to say, okay, I'm going to submit to God, because that's the first thing he's going to say, and that's where you've got to begin, is submit to the Lord. And you do that by believing in him. But I think it's also for the believer to say, okay, you know what, this is what my life is to look like with Christ, daily. It, it's, it's a daily reminder that this is what it's supposed to look like. And so, so look what he says here. I think you can apply to both. He says, submit therefore to God, in verse 7, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so this greater grace of God that he calls us to, it does what? It draws us near to God. And so he says, as a result of that, submit to God. And so this is a change, right? Because you had people before, they're not submitting to God. But now when they do submit to God, they're, they're changing direction. They're, they're changing who Lord, the Lord is. They have a new Lord. It's no longer self, but now it's, it's Jesus. And they're responding to his love. They're responding to his forgiveness. In church, we use this, and in Scripture uses it as well. It's the word repentance. To have a change of mind, to have a change of thinking, and to have a changed life. And literally, it's having a new Lord. And so you go from having a proud and arrogant spirit to now one of humility and brokenness over your sin before God as you submit to him. I don't know if you've ever met anybody before who um, will say, I have belief in Christ, but I don't want to submit to him. I don't know if you've had anybody verbalize that. I've had people verbalize that to me. People close, and it, and it breaks my heart. I'm like, okay, well, there's, there's a breakdown there, right? Um, now, we might know people um, that, that profess this, but don't live this. But, but that's what's going on in James. And that's why he says here, hey, listen, you, you might profess this and say you're this, and you come in and you join us and all this kind of stuff, but, but by your quarreling and conflict, you don't show that you're submitting to God with your life. And so James is saying, as a result, you need to submit to God. And so he's saying to those who, who are unbelievers, submit to God by trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. He needs to be Lord of your life. There needs to be a new Lord. And so submit to God. And then he says this, um, then one who submits to God as your new Lord, what happens now? You're resisting the devil and he will flee from you. Where before you opposed God and you were an enemy of God, now if, if God's now Lord, if Christ is Lord, you're opposing the enemy. You're, you're against the enemy and resisting him. And there's a promise that comes with this. He says, and he, the enemy, will flee you. Why is that possible? That's possible because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we can flee the enemy because of the power of Christ. And so when confronted with the truth of the gospel, the enemy flees. Through the armor of God that we are fitted with as believers, as we read about in Ephesians 6, we can repeatedly defeat the enemy in every fiery dart that he throws at us. We can defend and we can conquer because of Christ. 
And then he says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Meaning come near to him. Come and reside in the presence of God. It's speaking of a relationship. This intimate fellowship that we can have now with the Father. Where we were a distance with him. Um, we, we did not know him. We didn't want to have anything to do with him. And now, he says, now you have this intimate relationship with him. You can draw near to him. And so this is our daily call. Our life is submitted to him, and now daily we draw near to him, and he draws near to us. It's John 15 in verse 4 where Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. And that's what Christ wants for us, is draw near to him daily. And I think what a great reminder for us as believers that we need to do that through the word of God as we take time to read the word, as we pray how significant that time is. And then look what he says in verse eight as well. He says, come and cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Very much Old Testament language that James is using here that his Jewish readers and uh, those listening would have definitely understood. Because the Old Testament often speaks of this connection between the hands and the heart. In Psalm 24, remember what David says in verse three and four, he says, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or has sworn deceitfully. And so the hands were used to represent what? This external behavior. And so James says, listen, may your life be changed. May it be cleansed. May your life be cleansed of, of sin and, and guilt and shame and impurity. And now may you live a life of holiness. And so one is not only to turn from their outward sins, but also, where does it begin? It's, it's inward, right? From inward sin. And that's why he brings up the heart, because that's where sin springs forth from. And so the heart is to be made pure as he speaks directly to those who are lacking integrity, claiming one thing but living another. And so he says, come and submit to God, cleanse your hands, and have your hearts purified. And that's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does. Through the cross, he purifies our hearts and he cleanses us. And then he says in verse 9, he says, Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy torn to gloom. And some of us read that and we're like, I don't know if I want that. I mean, let's be honest, right? You read verse 9, you're like, okay, hold the boat for a second. I like joy. I like to laugh. I don't know if I like these other things. So what is James saying here? He's saying real simply, grieve over your sin. Grieve over verses 1 through 5. And when he says grieve, what does he mean? It's kind of like this. Have you ever had someone really close to you who passed away? It's the best thing I can think of. So this week, I started thinking, okay, my father-in-law, who I love dearly, we've gone now for nine years this coming May, and then I started thinking of my, my stepdad, who, who passed away um, it was eight years ago in March of, of this year. And so I started thinking, man, those are, those are the, the, the two closest that I've experienced and, and grieved over that. And so here's what James wants to do. James James wants us to, to think about mourning and weeping of loss and, and the grieving. And he, he's saying here, that grieving that you had over that person, 
I want you to grieve that way over sin. I want you to grieve that way over, verses 1 through 5, that, that you are in conflict with God, hostility to God, an enemy of God because of sin. I, I want you to grieve over it and realize how ugly and, 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 and impure and, and, and how he's saying, hey, listen, weep over it. And so he's saying here, as you're realizing how serious this is and how catastrophic it is for you and forever, others. And so he says, what you thought once led to joy, I want you now instead to be turned to gloom over those things. And those things that once you laughed at, you were flippant about sin or you were uncaring about your self-centeredness, what he's saying here is now, I want you to mourn over that selfishness and that attitude, and may it grieve you. And so he's saying that's when you come and you draw near to God, I, I want you to feel the weight of that. And then lastly, look at verse 10. This is what we close on. He says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What is he saying here? Make yourself low. I mean, you've seen the progression here. I think the best picture of this in Scripture is Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet of God, he's worshiping God in the temple. He, he sees the glory of God. And he comes face to face with who God is, with the holiness of God. And listen to what Isaiah said when he sees the glory of God. He says, woe is me. What's woe is me mean? Woe is me means judgment fall on me. Punishment fall on me. I'm guilty. Woe is me. I, I deserve it. And then he says, for I am ruined. Why does he say that? He says, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah sees God, and he sees who God is. And that's what James is calling us to. See who Christ is. See his greater grace. See his love. See his forgiveness. See his help. See his will. See his way. And come to him. Submit your lives to him and to his authority. See the glory of God and be ruined, be broken with who you are, with your sinfulness and selfishness, with your depravity. And when one humbles oneself before the Lord, it says here, they will be exalted. God will exalt them. What does that mean? Is that you will experience the spiritual blessings of the kingdom of God that comes lavished upon you as it's written about in Ephesians 1 by the grace of God. And that's what God grants to you, to experience now and also forever with eternal life that he blesses us with. And so humble yourselves. This is why Jesus came. So that the war that rages within us could be conquered. That's why he came. Today, he wants us to humble ourselves, to submit our lives to him, to draw near to him, and to recognize what are those desires, what are those pleasures that try to knock me off path and confess them to him and let him help and let him help. So as we come to a time of communion today, I, 
If you know Christ, your Lord and Savior, let's come. Let's, let's thank God. Let's celebrate this greater grace. And at the same time, let's, let's come confessing. And maybe before we, we come and enter a time of communion, that we just sit there and confess the things that, that may have been raging in our lives this week, the, the war, the desires that, that we have faced. And maybe we're here today and, and we read quarreling, we read conflict, and we're like, you know what? That's what i got to deal with. Maybe you're in conflict with someone. And maybe today you say, you know what, Lord, I, I am not going to participate in communion today. I, I'm going to make it a mission today, this week, to sit down and to be at peace with someone that I'm not at peace with. And that's what God would want from you. And so as we come today, may, may we approach this time in, in all holiness and all seriousness um, and remember together the blood and the body of Jesus Christ that was laid down for us, that greater grace so that we could have a relationship with him and so that the war within he could conquer for us. And so let me pray for us today.